What up, nerds? Welcome to episode 10 of Powerful, a power metal podcast. This is Four Gates, and I am here with my friend Larry Biscuit. Ew. Today, we sent our friends ZeldaFan355 and Darko deep into Middle Earth to spend a lovely evening speaking with some residents and experts on all things Tolkien related. Ed Ledron from last episode, and also Hansi Kursh from Blind Guardian. Have you ever wondered why time stood still on the Iron Hill? And what's the deal with mirror, mirror on the wall? Do Balrogs have wings? Do you know, Larry? Uh, I, I hear they do have wings from a very <laughs> credible source uh, named El- Elder Ron really? or oh, whatever. You mean, you mean the Lord of the Rings films? Yes, actually. <laughs> Peter Jackson yeah. is probably the most credible source that we have for all things Tolkien related. Yeah, and what's the deal with Lammoth? Lammoth's pretty cool. I hear it's about a lady who's really sad, <laughs> but we'll find out. Well, she sounds pretty upset on Nightfall in Middle-earth. We'll find out from the experts themselves, Hansi and Ed, in just a little bit. Yeah, anyway, that's why we are going to introduce this episode where our friends get into the deepest lore of Tolkien and the Silmarillion and get a behind-the-scenes view of Nightfall in Middle-earth. So come join us by the campfire, sit back, relax, and enjoy our episode, Tolkien Talk, an evening in Middle-earth. Yeah, may I start? Sure. Well, I'm Hansi Kirsch, vocalist of Blind Guardian. We did an album called Nightfall in Middle-earth, which is inspired by the Silmarillion, and that might be the main reason for me to be here tonight. That's exactly it, because as we've been saying in previous episodes a lot, we've been planning on doing an episode on Tolkien, on power metal music, and being like the cornerstone of this, that album. We're really glad to have you with us today here. It's a pleasure for me, man. So here joining us, are we're also with Zelda Fan and... Our resident expert, Ed Lethron. I hope I said that correctly. Hello, this is Ed Lethron, my resident token expert, and it's great to have you here, Hansi. Great to be here. Yep, and hello everyone, this is ZF. I'm sort of like a middling Tolkien fan, I guess. Not an expert, but I've, I've, I've dabbled into the deeper stuff, so hopefully I can serve as a good middle ground between everyone. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing to have... Hansi here speaking with us about a bunch of nerdy stuff. <laughs> yeah, I consider that to be my nerdy Sunday. <laughs> Beautiful. So let's, I, I'd say, let's let Ed um, lead us on this. Where should we start? So let's start the beginning. Tolkien was a uh, Oxford professor of interest in you know, fictional constructed languages and fairy tales this led him to writing the story called The Hobbit, which was published in 1937. And, you know, it got good attention, good amount of attention from publishers and the public. And, you know, there's there was this demand for a sequel, which, you know, Tolkien had this other mythology that he had been building up called The Cimmerillion. But the publisher wasn't really just interested in that. It was too far out there. So, in the mid-50s, Tolkien writes, or Tolkien publishes, Lord of the Rings. And this turns out to be, like, an even bigger hit than The Hobbit. You know, you got Tolkien societies popping up, 
and you know, really the big group is the hippies. Now, Tolkien wasn't too fond of this hippie connection with Lord of the Rings, but it was there for better or worse. And you know, what else was popular with hippies was rock music. So you get this sort of uh, early rise of Tolkien influence in you know, popular culture with bands like Led Zeppelin, later on Rush, I think even Black Sabbath had a Tolkien influence song. So I mean, I'm just wondering, Hansi, like, what was your exposure to sort of this early Tolkien music? Like, did that have much of an influence on your letter choices, or was it just your own love of Tolkien which led to you know your early Tolkien songs? Well, uh, I mean, when I started doing music, I was not really you know referring to Tolkien as a musician, or, you know, I, I didn't even consider that. Um, when we started writing songs for our band Lucifer's Heritage, there was no Tolkien-related topic. But when when we um, got closer, you know, to become professional, I um, recommended the book, The Lord of the Rings, to Andre, our guitarist. Yeah. And um, all of a sudden, that changed his perspective on, on things. He... Um, he just loved the the Lord of the Rings story, and he later on loved the Hobbit as well. And um, he recommended, you know, doing one particular song for for this <laughs> topic, and that was uh, when we started working on a song called Majesty, who appeared as the first song on our first album, Battalions of Fear. That was uh, our first reference to um, Tolkien, and. Um, Ever since that moment, especially in the beginning of uh, Blind Guardian's band career, we had a lot of songs which had a sort of narrative, Tolkienish approach already. Yeah. And then it turned obvious that we mingled in some Tolkien-inspired lyrics. By that, we also figured that a lot of the stuff we've made had that fantasy, mystery, horror literature approach and then we continued doing so and you know i got deeper and deeper into the subject and uh, my perspective on on lyrical um creations uh, changed over the years a bit but that sensation for you know these topics never disappeared so we from time to time um, um abuse <laughs> these topics uh, um at points again but um, I'm always, uh, you know, uh, uh, curious to hear that Black Sabbath has had a song influenced by Tolkien because, you know, I never figured that. Yeah, apparently uh, that song is The Wizard, which was kind of about Gandalf. I mean, I looked at the lyrics it? and it doesn't seem too Tolkien-related, but you can definitely see that influence there. Yeah, I listened to it immediately before we jumped on the call. It's more just generic wizard. It's kind of hard to say it's exactly Gandalf, but sure, why yeah. not? <laughs> yeah, like... like <laughs> The Wizard of Uriah Heep, which we covered, it's the yeah, same. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not necessarily Gandalf, but that sort of wizard, which also, you know, could be Merlin. So uh, I, I was just curious to find out. But uh, you know, the, the the particular talking songs, you know, I would refer to would be the hippie stuff, as you mentioned, or, you know, the more progressive bands like like yeah. uh, Rush yeah. when they did uh, Necromancer or Rivendale. Mm -hmm. Um, or um, what was it? Led Zeppelin, the Battle of yeah. Evermore, of course. That that has a strong uh, influence. But uh, you know, I considered myself to be something in between 
a hippie and a punk, you know, when, you know, when I was a young kid. So, so that also fitted and that might, you know, be the root of my Tolkienish inspiration, even though he may have disliked that. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely very clear that he had that impact on you. I mean, I definitely had that sort of impact with a lot of people, even if most people don't turn out to writing lyrics for metal songs. But uh, when we were planning this episode... No, Darko was, or Fernando was looking to, you know, the Cimmerillion and how that related to Night on the Earth. And, you know, he was listening to the audiobook of Cimmerillion and he had quite a strong reaction, I think, to the Anu Lindule or the music of Danner. Uh, Darko, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, so as I say, uh, I'm the least knowledgeable here. And as Ed just mentioned, I just like started listening to this audiobook of the Silmarillion, like next, last week. <laughs> so I, I, I think I, I'd rather read it, but just this first part about the songs, about um, Iluvatar and, and the Ainur and all these things, I found it like the the idea of singing and creating a, a theme that uh, then all the Ainurs have to harmonize and embellish by themselves and how that kind of is the creation of the world, the way it's written. Mm-hmm. And I find it like really, really inspirational. Like it just got my mind thinking into, I should start making some music right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I find it really like not, not even going into everything else, but just the way that it's written. It just feels so nice to have say, okay, so this is the history of the world. And it is what it is because it's this uh, song that is weaved together between all these different voices. That without all the voices, the concept was there, but because it is interpreted, because it's it's sung by the other ones and that it's harmonized and everything, that's when it comes to be actually. Mm-hmm. And then further into that, how the one dude that wants to do his own thing. Uh, yeah, creates all these little these harmonies and and stuff around. I I just I find it really I find it great. Like any musician that that listens or reads this, it really fires you to okay. I should start doing stuff like this and writing songs. <laughs> I mean, over the years, I've seen a lot of strong reactions to the Anulindale, and I mean, a lot of people think that's the most beautiful creation myth that you know, a culture or someone has put forth. But I mean, I haven't really thought of it as, you know, from the perspective of a musician, sort of what influence that might have. In in my case, it has had a big influence, of course. It's a little bit like um, the Genesis and the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly mm-hmm. can be seen as a definite inspiration. And, you know, if you look at it in its complexity, it's also like, you know, a reference to to each piece of music which can be invented because yeah. you as a musician start at point zero and you, you might have an idea and you you might listen to a melody in yourself but uh, i barely ever have a complete picture you know of you know how a song finally will evolve um that is something happening later so um I can easily refer to the music of the Ayanur. Uh, I said, as a creator, you may have the full picture in 
mind. But in that particular sense, I believe that uh, I or uh, Blind Guardian in general, we are more like um, the Ainur <laughs> because we're usually writing songs in a in a team constellation. And as as mentioned, there is there is a hidden melody deep within, and it just needs to be delivered at a certain point. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's definitely how the music of the Ainur plays out, where you know they each basically play their own song by themselves and everyone's sort of listening in and you know, sort of a, building a better understanding and that plays up to where you know they're able to play later on these big glorious themes and you know Melkor's doing his own thing but even that's taken into the main music to enhance it and comes better over time as every piece builds up every piece understands more of each other right this even gives more justification to Blind Guardian because you know we have the involvement of disharmonies or harsher interruptions, which makes sense in the uh, complex uh, uh, achievement of a song, but um, is not necessarily something which um, a listener would consider nicely, you know, if it would outstand too much. But, you know, within the whole um, creation, it, it delivers a, a beauty, you know, which you just can receive by, you know, um, putting in dark, evil and, and be most beautiful elements at the same time. What, what is light without some shade contrasting it? Yeah. Yeah. I thought an interesting part of that chapter was when they had Aero Iluvatar sort of stand back up and create like new themes that mm -hmm. the Einar couldn't even like conceive of to sort of overpower what Melkor was doing and tie it all back together. True. In this sense, I would say Iluvata is more like a producer than, than a musician, you know. He, he yeah. brings himself in when it's absolutely necessary, so yeah. things cannot get completely out of hand. I mean, that, that his, he considers this to be his task. So that is also why I'm referring more to the um, um, Ainur than, than to Iluvata mm -hmm. when I'm talking about, you know, musicians. But uh, yeah, the Iluvata aspect in there is, is very strong. And, you know, it really picturizes the, the, the whole story. I mean, the, the strong thing about Tolkien is that, you know, melodies and pictures, images uh, pop up in your mind immediately. And they might be different from person to person, but I'm pretty sure, you know, for a good amount of people, that is the case. You know, they, they read yeah. that stuff and it helps creating new images or, you know, improves their own imaginations. You know, it, it, it is the source of inspiration. I was actually listening to another podcast on Tolkien a while ago and Tolkien had this concept of sub-creation where you have God the creator whose authority must be respected but then within you know, that creation, Eru Luvtar gives free reign to you know, subcreate to enhance the overall work. And what the guests on this podcast brought up was the idea of sub-subcreation, where you have creation, then you have Tolkien subcreation, then you have people working within Tolkien's subcreation. And it's sort of this interesting play on one of Tolkien's ideas for his work, and applying that to how people have you know, taken influence from it. 
Most certainly. I, I would agree on that. Um, I mean, whatever, you know, happens in this universe can have an, an, an influence and, you know, um, needs to be considered individual. But in, in total, you know, people need to create, you know, you, you can be inspired by something, but you will have to bring your own spirit in at a certain point. That's yeah. the important point. Definitely. So as that conversation ended, I, we're digging deep into a book called The Cimmerillion by J.R. Tolkien. And Night Flown Earth is an album which was very much inspired by The Cimmerillion. Basically goes, you know, across the songs, it goes across various chapters, tongue, most of his story. Um, I was just wondering, like, Hensi, how did you go about actually adapting the similar into, you know, a metal rock opera album. You know, were you looking at favorite chapters or were you looking to tell the complete story? Just sort of what was your process on that? Well, we we first felt that the music which we came up with at that point um, of the decision, it might have been four or five songs. They all spoke a certain language you know which went into one direction at that point we could not exactly uh, judge into which direction that would be so um, I start chasing for inspiration and stories which mm, probably would fit and I came up with um, three different suggestions one was um, the Silmarillion another one was um, inspired by a German mythologic topic called um, the Saga of Rheingold, which is oh, yeah, quite popular as well. And then, of course, because I I was uh, pretty much into it at that time, the Arthurian epic and you know a storyboard about uh, Merlin the sorcerer. Um, I mentioned that to my band colleagues, and um, even though they did not know the Silmarillion at that time. They they figured my passion for the story and they <laughs> they picturized the uh, the songs in connection with pieces of the story. You know, I explained to them, and that made us go for um, Nightfall in Middle Earth. And um, when uh, the Silmarillion, I'm sorry, when uh, doing so, um, I needed to find the right spot in the story, you know, to be featured on the yeah. album because it was obvious that the uh, Cimmerillion yeah. is such a gigantic story, it would never ever fit completely. So I was obviously searching for the most interesting part of the story, at least the most interesting part for me, and that <laughs> has been the flight of the Noldor. Um, the story of course, also has a good of amount of similarities to The Lord of the Rings, which made it easier to comprehend for my bandmates. And I assumed um, it would have been easier for the listener as well, you know, to just follow a storyboard related to that particular part of the story. And, um, yeah, I think it makes the access easier to the story. Um, but I also feel that this is the part with a you know, where the strongest characters and the, the most storytelling is going on. Um, I was thrilled by characters such as Feanor or Fingolfin, and they made it easier 
to compose songs afterwards because as mentioned at that point we had like four or five songs and you know they 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 they, they spoke that fantasy like um, um language but we needed to continue later on and that in a even stronger talking direction so it was good to have such strong characters and um it helped composing for sure yeah i mean the earlier part of the Cimmerian with five orders definitely a favorite of mine as well and a big part of that is definitely you know the passion from Feanor, you know, as he leads you know this exodus of the Noldor back into Middle Earth, you know, on this quest of vengeance. And I mean, I just gotta say that your songs perfectly capture that tone. So I think it's definitely a good choice to uh, focus on that early part. And one of the important bits that comes up a lot in that album, and I think is one of the key parts of the Silmarillion, is that first kinslaying of uh, Feanor and the Noldor. Mm-hmm. Uh, killing the is it the Teleri? Is that how you say it? Yeah, Teleri. The Teleri elves to steal their ships and hightail it back to Middle Earth in pursuit of Morgoth, and really focusing on that and the curse that's placed on them, the the oath that Feanor and his sons swear. It's it's yeah. powerful stuff, and it's easy to see how you get want to make an album about it. Yeah, you know, doing stuff for the music of the Ionor, for example, you know that. In my perspective, you know, and I'm a vocalist, that needed to be instrumental and uh, choral-like and maybe classical. Uh, therefore, I thought, well, that would not fit. We may do a song in, in the future, you know, which refers to, to such music. And then there might be a little singing, may, maybe even without words, just, you know, whatever comes into my mind then. Uh, <laughs> But uh, um, it, it would not have fitted. And the same can be said about other parts, like the Valaquenta. That would have been so much more difficult, you know, <laughs> even you know, to keep up the excitement. But, but here, when talking about the flight of the Nolder, you have a sort of um, screenplay in front of you. Of course, you know, it's, it's loosely written and um, there, there is a chronological order and um, there, there partly is a sort of storytelling and um, you, you can figure that it is a gathering of different myths and different, you know, perceptions, you know, that might have been even Tolkien's intention, but still it it is very compact. And um, so I felt it more easy to, you know, follow that line. But even then it was difficult to get that from one point to the other point. Uh, we luckily started with uh, the War of Wrath. So we had the, the finishing in the beginning and um, did not have to take care on that too much. But but other than that, it was um, it was a struggle for me to, to get through the story to, to a certain point so it w- would make sense. And even then, I left out some stuff which might have been, you know, worth to be mentioned or to be dicked in a little more um, carefully and and more deeper. But uh, as you said, I mean, Fernor, for example, he reveals so many different uh, facets um, in terms of being, you know, such a smart ass on one hand. On the other hand, he, he can be he can be a rude unfair guy you know and um, definitely from from that point on i also like the nolder so much because they they have a certain human approach and you know um that was something which helped me uh, not only uh, understanding the story a little more but also you know filling it with life then on the other hand you have a, a character like fingolfin which is the 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 most shining hero you can imagine <laughs> and of course i mean that 
that that opens universes for me as a um, vocalist, but also for a songwriter like Andre, for example. You know, and, and we all in the band have the passion, you know, to somehow bring that into a musical piece which creates imaginations in the people again. Yeah, I mean, the Cimarron was, you know, a work that can be described as unfinished because Tolkien himself never published the work you know, in a completed form. And as a result, you sort of have sort of different drafts and texts lying around and different things happen in those texts. And in one of the later writings called uh, The Shabboleth of Feanor, um, one of Feanor's sons, called Emrod, is actually burned in the ships that uh, CF mentioned earlier before. And this wasn't something that uh, Christopher Tolkien brought into the similar that he published. So it's been interesting to see, you know, what impact that might have had on Night from the Earth if you know, that detail is included, because, you know, that is in, uh, one facet of Feanor that... Know, could be covered yeah uh, i mean there was so much stuff and you know i i dicked into many stories and and many aspects of that story um so if every input was uh valuable and <laughs> whatever i could have gotten in addition would have made a difference for sure i mean you're really taking this dense material and condensing it down to you know four to six minute songs where you only have so many verses, so many courses you can go through. I imagine it must have been really difficult to, you know, take the Cimarron, which is this big, dense text, and cram it into that space and, you know, get a result that's comprehensible out of that. Well, you have to go with the flow. If, uh, you know, <laughs> if you have an idea and um, if you... I need to force myself to look into one direction, you know, and then... Mm -hmm ignore others and well then things become fairly logical and and doable at the same time yeah definitely this is i'm really amazed at everything that i'm hearing <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is definitely a great conversation this is really really interesting <laughs> I, i need to read all this stuff <laughs> <laughs> It's definitely a book worth reading. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. One of the things I'm really interested in learning about is how you guys went about choosing uh, when you maybe you had certain ideas for the stories or the portions of the Silmarillion you wanted to cover and how you decided how you wanted to fit that into the music. Like Baron and Luthien uh, get a very metal song with When Sorrow Sang And then uh, Turin and the huge tragedy that he goes through gets uh, the battle with Harvest of Sorrow. Well, if you relate to these two pieces, I mean, um, I would go for Harvest of Sorrow first and uh, to Turin, of course, then. Uh, I think it fitted so beautifully because I honestly haven't even thought about that. You know, when, when the music popped up, it was clear to me that this would be a strong song for Turin because he's such a tragic character and his yeah. story is, you know, so intense. Um, it, there was not a lot of doubts in me that th this would fit. Plus I had that tragic love story, you know, um, which fitted the music so well. So that was fairly easy. More surprising might be when Sorrow sang and uh, Baron and Luthien because it's it's a very intense song, maybe the, the, the 
Yeah, maybe the curse of fear now is even a little more intense, but uh, when Sauron saying is intense, no doubt about that. Um, but they basically got a second spot in out on the water, which probably is more suitable for them at a first glimpse. If you know, if I relate to to the tragic loss which uh, Luthien has experienced, you know, I feel that there must have been anger and aggression at least in herself so her inner voice might have been you know different to what she um revealed to mandos when when singing in front of him and that was you know the my, my key holder for still thinking that this would be a good idea to have that at that particular spot and um for most cases we try to follow the story in a chronological order whenever it was possible. And um, at that point, you know, we are getting closer to the end of the album there. It was absolutely necessary to have something as intense. So um, there was much choice on the other side. <laughs> and in, I mean, it is definitely a very intense moment in the story when, you know, you have this very you know, stoic god being moved to only the first time in all of his history, being moved to pity. Yeah, it's just this epic, you know, song of the history of men and elves and all the suffering they've gone through. So it's the emotion's definitely there, and I mean that's another point with this album where, you know, taking this album out into you know sort of the more Tolkien circle versus the metal circle. You know, I've noticed some you know hesitance towards it because, you know, first off they might not be into metal, so that's sort of a hurdle to get over. But also, you know, sort of this view that I've seen is that Tolkien and metal you know, might not be the best fit for some people. Um, I think <laughs> the view there is sort of like that you know, electric guitars and stuff, like it's totally alien to Middle-earth compared to like horns or strings. But I think, you know, what you can really do with music is capture mood, you can capture feelings and tones like we've been talking about. And that's where I think... Night from Middle Earth really shines in capturing like Feanor's you know, breath and intensity of Luthien's motions. One of the key things that I've really liked is in the song Time Stands Still, you know, it's this big epic battle with this beacon of hope that Fingolfin is riding alone against, you know, basically the closest thing they have to the devil. <laughs> and it captures this feeling of inspiration, of tragedy, uh, aggression. It's Tolkien wrote about these huge epic battles. Like, it's kind of hard to think that he's not just, like, a nerd that's into this stuff. <laughs> and metal, and power metal in particular, just fits that so well. So, it's, so it, it's alien in one sense, but it, it fits perfectly in, in another. When I saw um, you guys perform Time Sense still live, I don't think I'd, I felt any more like I was in such, like, the middle of that giant battle. It, it just, it I think it fit perfectly. Thanks. And it's my favorite song, not only on the album, but um, for Blind Guardian music in general. And... Um, in general, I think we we put a lot of energy into this album. It's it's almost like you know Feanor who created his Silmarils at a certain point uh, prior to the flight of the Noldor. Um, but um, when you know when we finished that album, I felt that all energy was gone. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I I could relate to Feanor in a, in a lot of matters and. Um, yeah, I, I believe it might have been the case that Tolkien 
would not necessarily like heavy metal because um, some of the narrations he does, they refer, refer more to classical music, to maybe <laughs> medieval music, maybe uh, church music. But um, as mentioned in the beginning, you know, when seeing how Melko weaves in his topics and, you know, how he brings in uh, a darker intensity, yeah. I, I personally think that metal in general and rock in general um, perfectly well suits um, the, the talking music and um, the result, you know, not only of the Battle of Evermore, but, uh, you know, of some other songs as well, um, really um, give, pays tribute and gives uh, justifies um, artists who, you know, uh, still do music, no matter if talking would have liked it or not. I mean, it's, yeah, I have to express myself and I have to create whatever comes out of me. Um, and you know, I'm doing that with a full respect of an, of another artist, mm -hmm. if I'm inspired by another artist, but you know, I, I can't take back everything just because, you know, of the anxiety that someone might not like it, you know, um, like Tolkien did it with, his writing you know he reveals his soul and his his heart to everyone and um i know that he has been afraid you know that the soul can be destroyed or the heart can be broken and that obviously is the same with every musician you know revealing his heart and his soul to to music but um It, it needs to be expressed and it needs to be revealed you know no no, no matter what the result might be And you definitely need to separate, you know, the art and the artist. And, you know, really with Tolkien, if you read his letters, you know, other people had approached him about, you know, working off of his stories. And, you know, sometimes he'd be critical of it, but he was always very humbled that other people would be so moved by his stories that, you know, they'd want to go off and create their own works of art. So I think he definitely have some appreciation there, even if he wasn't, you know, even if he couldn't be himself, No, into metal. Yeah, I, I would guess so. Because, you know, I always feel pleased if I see, you know, someone is inspired by Blind Guardian. And um, no matter in which direction he or she is conducting him or herself, um, it, it is a big honor. And um, what I feel, not only in the music of, um, of the um, Iron World, but... Um, with regard to talking in general, that he, um, more than anything else, you know, um, appreciates the freedom, you know, the, the, the freedom of speech, the freedom of, you know, individual thinking and individual art as well. Um, he probably has more problems if you start analyzing his stuff and, you know, drive it into certain direction like you know he is referring to this or he is referring to that while he most probably just wanted to tell a great story you know he created his own universe he was a genius linguist and um you know he he, he did his own thing <laughs> that was i think his his main passion definitely i mean freedoms freedom and free will are definitely big themes in his work i mean really evil in his stories is defined by, you know, dominating wills and, you know, saying you have to do it this way, you can't do it the other way. You know, Sauron, 
you know, basically started his descent into evil by saying, you know, well, I think everything would be better if we just did this. For sure. Yeah, I mean, with that regard, it's, you know, it's it's not exactly like... Um, like in the Bible, but you know, if if you look at it, you know, free will comes in by the evil uh, um, creatures there at times. Like you know, Lucifer is the one who questions things, and Melkor basically is doing the same thing in the music of the Ironhorn. Yeah, he wants to be his own creator, and you know, that's not really an evil goal in itself. It's more how he went about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you probably do not. Is, uh, accept authorities <laughs> then, then you come up with your own stuff of course right his music was discordant or he would pervert the creations <laughs> of everyone else <laughs> well <laughs> a discord here and there is not the the worst yeah so sometimes this is just the spice that you need to complete a thing exactly you know if food is not hot and spicy we all know. <laughs> and this links back to the Anulindule, where, you know, one of the various points is that, you know, you need variety, and variety enhances everything else. True. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious. Simran is told, you know, from a you know, mythological perspective, it's not really a dramatic work. Um, Nightfall and Earth, you know, the lyrics are very, you know, from the perspective of characters. And can you just talk a little bit about about your process and, you know, how you thought about putting yourself, you know, as the lyricist in the position of these characters and you know, what impact that might have had. Well, when singing, of course, I try to switch into, you know, different characters, you know, no matter if it is uh, on the Nightfall album or on any other album, it always reveals a little bit of my different me's to say so um what i can do best is i think and that is why you mentioned um, the curse of feanor before is you know expressing anger in a convincing way and um of course that is where i try to pick up my most favorite uh, characters when are they these characters are most angry. When do they reach the the saddest point? You know, in a in a story where I can capture them, um, how can I, you know, um, capture someone who is um, probably featured in a certain way throughout the whole story, but try to reveal something which. Um, might show a different perspective of of this side. I'm I'm referring to who's what was his name, um, Medros, the, the guy I refer to in 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 Blood Tears. You know, yeah. he he's not the nicest person, but you know he is humiliated and uh, he's in a desperate situation. And you know, I try to capture that and and just bring that into the most suitable way our music allows it or you know then a person like Maglo for example who was a a key character for me for the whole story because that's how I was able to bring in my perspective of the story uh, by another musician which was very important and um, Maglo is mainly the one who's singing in in Nightfall Um, he knows about the failures but you know he cannot change what they have done and he you know he 
as every Nolder, he's bounded to the curse. So um, whether he may have good aspects or not, you know, he has he has to carry his burden. And, and I try to reveal something like that. And this is how I related not only to Nightfall, but but to every uh, song. For instance, when, when we go to Into the Storm, you, you, you're listening to, uh, how do you call that, a hungry Ungoliante? I don't know how you would... Ungoliant? How do you say it? Ungoliant or Ungoliante. Okay. <laughs> we would say Ungoliante. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Ungoliant would do too. Um, I, I do not even know if she does a lot of talking in the story. And, and when listening to her, um, you know, there is my reference to, to, to Gollum, of course. That would have been a spot <laughs> if that was a, a, a Lord of the Rings inspired album that would have been my spot for for Gollum for sure and um on the other side this is where you get Morgoth in in the most disparate situa situation and I try to capture that um at the same time then we have a song like The Elder for example and there's not only the need to fit in uh Felagund because you know I, I need the uh how can I say that the um the introduction for Baron and Luthien, but um, I also have that deeply tragic, sad, melodic song, which you know just reveals in its own the the the, the tragedy of Noldor dying, you know, by sacrificing himself to say so, and um, this needs to be delivered in you know every single word, but you know, also in the uh, performance itself. So I don't know how many times I sang that before um, we, we finally found, found a version we felt was suit suitable. I did that day after day after day because such a song I cannot sing, you know, on spot. I, yeah. I did several attempts and I, I knew what to do, but, you know, you need the magic moment to make that really the song which... Um, comforts not only the lyrics but also um the topic and the emotion of the moment and you know i think you did a great job there i mean you brought up blood tears earlier and you know, something i think that interest that's interesting about that song that moment in the story is that you know you it's about this war and there's torture and you know it's a very tragic circumstance for mothers but at the end of the day it's you know something that we might not be seeing a lot in this moment in stories that you know, ultimately it's about friendship. It's about Fingon wanting to rescue his friend and yes. to some extent repair relations. That's an extra component to the song that I think was definitely worth, worthy of mention. I believe so too. When we when we did it, um, we, we had a discussion in the band, I, I remember, um, because some of the band members did not like that song and, and it was difficult for them to realize the beauty which was in the song and, you know, to understood what Andre and I had in mind, you know, by, by doing such a song. But um, I felt there was a necess necessity to, you know, feature that particular moment in the story in the, the best possible way because um, Blood Tears reveals both the beauty and the uh, disgrace, you know, of the whole story. And um, it is also featured in in Madros as a person, I think. For sure. 
one of the songs I thought was really interesting was uh, Thorn, the one talking about Maeglin and like the fall of Gondor and like the struggles yes. that he went through. Uh, where it's, it's like, like yeah. do you how do you call that ale? Ale? <laughs> I don't know. Ale? Dark ale. Health. Yeah, that's you're right. I mean, uh, the, the topic is right, but um, you know, my my idea was you know to get ale in there because um, he's how do you call that humiliated and degraded and um, not treated equally, but his ambitions are high and at the very end he is supposed to fail you know there there is no other option and um i i found that very tempting yeah i mean maglin story is such an interesting one because you know on one hand he has such tragic cir- circumstances where you know his father basically murders his mother in an attempt to kill himself well kill maglin and then his father is thrown off cliff and oh yeah you now he's just raised in a very hostile <laughs> environment towards him then Morgoth comes and tortures him and basically promises him everything that he wants if he betrays his city. So he's done this very evil thing, but at the same time, you know, you have to have some pity for him. For sure. Yeah, that's what I mean. And um, this is what I, I try to bring in uh, in in Thorn, especially in the beginning. Uh, it is obvious, you know, that, that something mystic and something misery-wise will happen. Yeah. I love the lyrics split song of death. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was a, a lucky coincidence. Um, I don't know, you know, if I should spoil <laughs> this story, but uh, this lyrical part came in because of one of my ideas, my other conceptual ideas, the one about the Rheingold saga, and. Um, the song of death and you know honor plays a very important role there and when we started working on that song um, i was more referring to uh, to um, the rheingold saga in the beginning than than to um, any story related to um, tolkien and i just felt well at that particular point this part still fits so so i kept it in and i also yeah. think it's not only because of the meaning but also the way it has been woven in is one of the strongest pieces uh, in that particular song in the rango possibly there's kind of interesting because a lot of people have noted that tolkien himself might take some influence from that story particularly with you know the one ring being a magic ring and sort of this object of you know all this tragedy it is kind of interesting that that builds up to the fall of Gondolin, but there isn't actually a song, you know, dedicated to you know, Bado itself. Was that a conscious decision on your part, or was there just not enough room? Was there, you know, did you just not have a song that fit that? I already had enough battles. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I was running, uh, you know, out of content in in terms of songs, and um, I needed to make a decision there, and I yeah. went this direction. Um, I I was really struggling with myself here, you know, um, also how to end the story. We have, you know, two additional songs which did not end up on the album because we were not able to finish them. Mm-hmm. One was Doom, which later on appeared on the Beyond the Red Mirror album. I altered the lyrics a little bit 
But uh, when we are going to release uh, the vinyl version of Nightfall in Middle-earth, um, hopefully at the end of the year, um, this version with uh, the original lyrics and um, another song, which is called The Tides of War, which also deals with Feanor and the, um, the Tillery and uh, the Burning Boats, um, will be um, featured on, on this uh, vinyl version. Um, I really had to struggle how to end the story and you know how to um, uh, to fit in most of the topics as much as possible. Doom just to end up um, just you know takes place right after the fifth battle, so um, we we follow Morgoth a little bit and. Um, this might not be the better ending for the album, <laughs> but um, it was at least a chance for me to continue a little bit and, you know, get a little more content in there. But uh, here and there pieces were, you know, supposed to be left out because simply there was no music anymore. Yeah, there's definitely so much space you can put on a CD. That's true. That That's true. But, you know, uh, the the creative output... There was not more. <laughs> we just had these, whatever, 60 or 70 minutes of music, which is quite a lot, but, you know. Um, I mean, it sounds like it was quite a struggle in that, even just that. I think I also remember reading, uh, like, in the book that came with the box set that released in 2013, I think. I think you remember mentioning that you couldn't finish the uh, story of the Cimmerlian's album. Yeah. I mean, I always, you know, considered going back and doing Nightfall Middle Earth Part 2. <laughs> but but where to end up then, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's always more of Tolkien. Yeah. Nightfall even sort of ends on a bit of a downer with the last, I guess, full song being Dark Passage about Horin just being tortured. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what I, I do at Doom, you know. I'm extending that a little bit. Because I, I felt that was... From from the from the um, man kind of perspective, the most intense moment apart from Turin. And uh, I guess tying into more of like the way the story is told, we talked about um, embodying some of the characters. Uh, Nightfall Middle Earth uses a lot of shorter interludes uh, through it that tie into the concept, and some of which are even voice acted by people that are not you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was curious about <laughs> all all that. <laughs> Sometimes it's it's good not to be me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could not have done that, you know. I I wrote down the whatever it was monologues, dialogues, and you know it took forever. <laughs> Again, it took away a lot of energy, and um, I I was really running out of idea how to you know get that onto the album because um, we felt that a little bit of storytelling would be the icing on the cake but um, to find such people was quite difficult we were uh, recording in Denmark and uh, we needed to have some Shakespeare sort of speaker characters so by coincidence I, I found these two guys you know mainly it was uh, Charlie Bauerfeind who back then was our engineer who used to work with one of the two and you know um he didn't know exactly if that was what i was looking for but you know he just gave me the number and i spoke to norman the guy who's doing margot for example um 
And, you know, just by hearing his voice, I knew all my problems were, were solved at that moment because <laughs> he had such a strong voice and, you know, it was so beautiful just to hear him speak on the on the phone and I had so many other ideas coming up and I knew, oh, he's a native speaker. So if something in my dialogues or monologues is incorrect, they can even correct it and make it better and they can, you know, they can make it their own. And so I sent him all this stuff and um, he he found that other guy and I don't think that they even rehearsed. They, you know, they just got my descriptions, how I wanted, to, you know, the, the, the characters to be uh, featured. And then I went to England for an afternoon. And these guys, they just, you know, they, yeah, they smoked it. It was done in two or three hours, you know, all this stuff. Oh, wow. When the setting, you know, was completed, they were doing a rehearsal and the rehearsal was so great that I was completely freaking that the the guy, the engineer, probably would not have recorded it. And I was screaming at him and I said, record it, record it. It's great. It's great. I don't need anything else. And he said, yeah, it is recorded. <laughs> but they go for a second run and, and it will be even better. And it was. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was really cautious because, you know, I'm, I'm believing in magic moments and... Uh, I felt that was one, but these guys were totally professional, so it didn't make a difference. I think if they did it twice or three times, maybe, but but whatever they they've done, I was fine after the first already. That just now that just now sounded like you have created this theme, but you needed someone else to actually perform it to bring it to its full completion and and deliverance, like. They were your Einer. It always comes back to the end of the door. Yeah, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I played that string in them, right? <laughs> I, I taught them pieces of the music, but not everything. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, they accomplished it. And I was the conductor, but, you know, I, I figured I was not necessarily needed there. If, if I did not appear it would not have made a difference hmm. for sure, because they, they were so professional and they knew what to do. But I have to um, admit that um, once I do explain things, you know, in terms of a production situation, I try to be as precise as possible. <laughs> I've learned that over the years and uh, it seems that I, I scratched something in, in them. So, For the very first and maybe last time, no, not for the last time, but for one of the first times I've been Iduvata. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does bring up an interesting point where you, know, you have to think, what does Morgoth sound like? What does Sauron sound like? And so on. And with an album, music, you know, telling a story that way, it leaves much more to the viewer or the listener, much like the book does, where they can imagine things as, you know, as they please. I think that's one of the strengths of you know, telling a story through music versus like you know, movies or video games or something where the imagery is much more dominated by you know, the director or you know, the actors and such. Or you have to actually see something. Yeah. It's, I mean, the visual impact of that is just so dominating. Yeah, that that is true. I mean, 
when making music, that's in general um, a goal, you know, to, to visualize things even though they are not there. And I mean, that is probably the, the beauty of the music of Ainur as well. You know, everyone has a certain understanding about that music, even though it never has been composed. Because you just feel that, you know, by the words used, there is music and this music must sound terrific i mean there there is no doubt about that and that of course has been our goal um whenever talking about a concept you also have to consider how to use effects you know like like a bridge or you know which is or a tower falling down you know dragonfly and whatever you you know you want to uh, design it, it needs to be done in the most suitable way and um the perception um, of the listener, you know, depends on his ability to uh, reflect such things for himself. But uh, um, it, the more help <laughs> we we can give, the more support we can give, the better it is, of course. And the more precise we are, the, the better um, the the picture will be. I mean, an album like this definitely benefits from really engaging in the lyrics and the story around it. I mean, I think. As Kyle and Fernando have been listening to the album and reading the stories this week in pr preparation for this, and I think they've talked a little about getting sort of something of a newfound appreciation for the album. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I was re-listening to Nightfall and looking at the lyrics just last night after having gone through the Silmarillion, and it was just this moment of like, oh my god, it all makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, I, at, at that point, I also depend on you know the listener um to be willing to invest time in investigating talking and the Silmarillion. on the other hand this music and my lyrics need to strike something in a person even though um this person might not have heard anything about the Silmarillion and is not keen of Tolkien's writing so that you know that is the other part of the of the coin um we're still musicians and we're doing our own thing so um this needs to be delivered as well i'm struggling with the same at the moment where we are working on um, an orchestral project which we started back with nightfall in middle earth and um, some of the music also has a strong tolkien approach but you know, it needs to shine even without Tolkien-related topics. Yeah, and I, I can say about that that I first listened to the album just knowing what it was about, but as I said, I haven't read The Silmarillion or gone in deep on all these things, but I could tell that, that the album had this story going on with certain characters clearly defined, and I want to say this is one of this is one of those concept albums that when they have uh, people just talking and narration, it completely fits the overall mood of the album. And it doesn't feel like everything stopped just for talking and explaining, but it's rather an integral part of, of it. Right. You mentioned Out on the Water uh, earlier, sort of just tying in with Baron and Luthien or the Dark Elf tying in with Thorn. Uh, I like those little touches though. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, and imagine when you're playing for thousands of people live and you want them to sing along to a chorus. You can't really have you know, this expectation that they're intimately familiar with the Cimmerillion. 
they might not know who Melkor is, but they can sing along to Tumson still. Yeah. Yeah. Or even you guys, uh, I think usually end your shows with like a big song like Mirror Mirror, which is about the founding of Gondolin and learning like what the Lord of Water is. When I was learning <laughs> about the, the, the Valar was <laughs> interesting. I'm like, oh my God. That just those little connections, those little details uh, really help uh, your understanding of the album, your appreciation for the music. It gets you more into the story. I don't really know what the mirror mirror part is about. Uh, I was expecting that quiz question. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I, I found that in in one of the uh, unfinished tale stories. I don't know if it was in unfinished tales or in in one of the other writings. I found a mirror in Gondolin. <laughs> Finally, but uh, it has not been uh, um, um, related to that, and it also has not been related to um, Galadriel's mirror. That was, you know, to spoil the story again, I had these words and I could not get rid of them. They were so magical and they fit into a dream, you know, a mirror, you know, the dream is a mirror of whatever your. Yeah your mind is willing to reveal or, you know, it, it contains a secrecy, you know, it shows the other side of you. So it's still fitted and we are known for mirrors. So I did not have too many problems with it, but it, it was an issue for me for a while. I, I did sing like at least three or different choruses there. Like there's a shadow on the wall, which fitted somehow, you know, but uh, it, did not have the same magic. So I certainly at that point um, regretted it, but, you know, the 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 flow of words, the magic of words, which, you know, um, pleased the origin, and that was Mirror Mirror, um, they, there was no chance to get away from them, you know, without hurting this particular part of music. And so I kept it in because I, I, I thought, well, it's still music and, you know, there's still a lot of space for interpretations. So it does not really hurt the story. And it, it's still obvious what I'm singing about when you know, you know, what the story is about. But, um, yeah, there is no real need for the mirror there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely room for artistic license. And, I mean, like you said, there's absolutely nothing going against the story. There's just, you know, your depiction of that moment. Yeah. Yeah, Mirror Mirror was the first Blind Guardian song I heard, you know, however many years ago. And I had no idea it was about like anything Tolkien related. I thought, is this a Snow White thing? <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is, you know, this only this piece of the song and um, not only the complete um, arrangement, but but the Mirror Mirror on the Wall line, including uh, the, the rhythm guitars, they have been composed for um, imaginations from the other side. Well, they would have made sense completely because we had these mirrors on the album and it was more about two worlds, you know, lying on the opposite side of two mirror, uh, of one mirror. So um, they fitted in there, but, but the part itself did not fit into the music. It was, um, it was to say so, a leftover of I'm Alive, where we had that intense uh, uh, chorus part and we thought, well, no... Uh, Mirror Mirror is great chorus, but we cannot use it here. So we put that aside for at least two or three years until, you know, we started working seriously on, on the Nightfall concept. And and then I just 
mentioned to Andre that we still have that beautiful chorus. And he said, yeah, we have to work on that. And that's, you know, when we started working on 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 uh, the Mirror, Mirror, the song. I mean, it's a great song. It's sort of one of your more popular songs. So I think you definitely did something right there. Yeah. Thanks. For sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I believe that Mirror, Mirror maybe is the... Not the most mainstreamish, but but one of the songs which you know really captures uh, the attention of any person who's into mm-hmm. power speed metal music because it yeah it has that that value that that beauty that you know will amaze people and um, as you said you don't need to know what it is about I would say. Um, that is the case with a lot of the songs, not with all, but um, like like Into the Storm or Time Stands Still. They they are standalone songs. Yeah, I would say that 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 that's true for for those songs. Like I really enjoyed them before even paying attention to the actual lyrics. Like this, this is great, and I'm and I get the the concept of the songs and what they are what you are trying to tell with them. What feelings are you trying to convey? And then you go look at the lyrics and you say, oh, this is about this thing. And then you go look at that thing and, oh, man, now it, it only got better. It was already great. <laughs> and now I got all this extra depth to to go into and experience it in this way that is even better than before. You know what? When uh, we did, it was Into the Storm and it was Time Stand Still. Uh, their working titles, you know, even... When you know Andre didn't know anything about the Silmarillion, and I'm not even sure if uh, we decided to go for uh, the Silmarillion at that point. Into the Storm was called Gollum Speaks, <laughs> working, working title. When he when he came up with the first sixteen or thirty two bars and asked me to you know come up with uh, with uh, melody lines for it, um, and Time Stand Still was called Frodo Speaks. <laughs> <laughs> so you see i mean it is all connected you yeah yeah back then we certainly and and sometimes we're still you know when when doing music so heavily inspired whatever Tolkien came up with that even if there is no word sung and andre doesn't even know in which direction my melodies will go he he just you know just for the sake of having a title and probably of having an idea of an inspiration, you know, where where to drive his own musical um, um, direction. He names them like that. And sometimes it's easy to pick up. Sometimes it's not. Hmm. It's just interesting hearing that because it really contributes to, you know, Tolkien's ability to have this, you know, really unique tone throughout his writings. Uh, his style is it's one of the big draws for me. Right when I've like I've read a decent amount of fantasy and no one quite has like that poetic or like song like would be a good way to put it uh, quality to the way he writes. When I was first reading uh, Return of the King and doing the battle at Pelennor Fields, like it, it doesn't even feel like a battle. It, it it feels like music in a way. Oh, it even ends with this uh, big long song at the end, uh, the song of the Mount Moonberg, where it has the hearing basically mourning their dead in a very. Uh, like sort of oh, yeah. fashion. Yeah. And Tolkien certainly liked his songs. There's there's tons of them throughout The Hobbit and the uh, Lord of the Rings too, and even you know, sprinkled in with the Silmarillion. That uh, it it just makes sense that it, his legacy in a way would be you know, inspiration to musicians like yourself. 
Oh, for sure. Um, I, I think the one of the strengths, apart from, you know, weaving in music, is that he reveals a lot of things by not saying them. Like, if the sounds in, in the Lord of the Rings, he stays undefined. And you still have, for me, he stays un, undefined. And you still have a perfect image and a perfect feeling about, you know, his size and the threat which uh, goes out from him. You know, without really de finally determining, you know, details about him. And uh, this is a quality, you know, which... Tolkien has, he leaves that to the listener or to the reader um, who therefore, you know, can create his own Sauron. I mean, it was definitely one of Tolkien's traits that he left so much to the reader and in the Tolkien fan community that's led to a lot of lively debates, you know, ranging on everything from Tom Bombadil to, you know, did Sauron have a body or not? Did Balrogs have wings or not? It's really kind of interesting to <laughs> I would, so. <laughs> I, I would say they have. I would say they have. Oh my god! Oh man, that that's a yeah. can of worms. <laughs> that that oh, is man. a big can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's artistic, creative interpretation. It's fine. Yes. Yeah, don't get I mean, don't get upset. There, there's nothing in Tolkien that says they don't have wings. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I'm yeah. gonna die. I mean, at least the uh, winged barrel image, it's definitely a cool monster. <laughs> yeah, I need to look. Um, I just got an artwork from an artist, and uh, there are Balrogs on there, and I think he designed them with wings. That is the reason why I just <laughs> said, well, they have wings, because I like the image, I mean, which the, the artist yeah. came up yeah. with. Um, well, I, I, I don't care. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's all they are, great, they are great creatures, and you know, I don't want to meet them. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone would. <laughs> and sorry, they really fill the role of, uh, of course, torturers. So, oh. not not the kind of guys that you want to meet. Yeah, a, a number of the characters in the Silmarillion were, you know, just beaten to death by <laughs> Balrogs. Yeah, but they get that shit as well, so that's all right. True. I have um, one thing that I just thought about um, because right now, first, I'm glad that I'm not the only non-native English speaker in the show today. <laughs> and, Did you recognize? And, and as I want, I wanted to ask you. When you first read, um, I don't know, whatever book you read first of this one, how, did you read translations to German or the English books? Because I'm thinking that some of the songs that are written in the books, that how they might come off different in different translations due to the rhythm and the number of syllables in the words and stuff. I think um, to say that first... Um translations especially if you're talking about poetic approaches they might be very accurate and they they try to fit that in 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 almost every language as good as they can um, when i started reading talking it was in german and i started reading it 
in the early 80s, I would say. It must have been maybe 82 or 83, I would guess. Because I first heard about The Hobbit when I was 14 or 15. It was rec recommended by me by a guy who I considered to be a nerd and I was not interested to read The Hobbit back then. <laughs> But uh, suddenly, suddenly I found the book uh, in the bookshelf of my sister who did never uh, recommend it to me. I'm not even sure if she read it herself or if it was, you know, just for school purposes that that she was forced to read it but it, you know i i saw it there and i read it and it was uh, it was a paperback um in a quite good translation i must say after having read the english version afterwards uh, two or three times um and i immediately love it so um the, the translation must have been good and you know the the story told is pretty much the same you would get in any other language as well so um they they had be, they have been very careful mm -hmm. by knowing how picky Tolkien has been about um, um, language and his words, you know. Uh, he might not have, have been satisfied with it. I don't know. He might have lived even at the time this translation has been done. So um, I'm pretty sure he had a keen eye on it. Uh, that's, that's for sure. So when we started songwriting, it was still the same. There was no English version available. And back then there was no internet. It was in the middle of the 80s. Um, late 80s when we dealt with uh, the first lyrical Tolkien topics for, for our music so um, what I had as a reference was the German version and that created definitely problems like when we did um, a song called Lord of the Rings in the 90s uh, I still did not have an English in the very early 90s I still did not have an English version so My English was okay, but, you know, back then I did not pay too much attention, you know, on uh, lyrical correctness or grammar correctness um, in particular, because um, my impression, and I believe it was the case, that, that no one really cared about it. And it was more, you know, the language coming from the heart, which, which was more important for me. So um, I did not use a word like, because I didn't know the word dwarf back then. Or I knew the word, but, you know, I thought gnome or gnome would be more suitable for dwarf. So I used the word gnome instead of dwarf, which I would have used if I knew the English version. Um, and stuff like that happened because, you know, I just, you know, worked with a translation and translated, translated that back with my, you know, mediocre English back then uh, into, you know, The, the native or the original language. So <laughs> there must have been accidents, for co of course. Mm. That changed uh, in the 90s when, uh, you know, I traveled to England a lot of times and there were bookshops, you know, selling English books at that time, which was quite expensive because you had to, to, to uh, pay even more money for those. So um, that changed a lot. And, you know, I've had some friends in the US which sent me stuff. So um, my... English got a little better. I became a little more picky and a little more aware of, you know, how accurate things would are, are supposed to be. So that, that made a change. I had the English versions. I read the English versions and um, that helped me a lot. When reading The Silmarillion, my first reading was in English. Hmm. You always have to work with what you have. Yeah, yeah. With gnomes, it's actually kind of interesting because in the early writings of 
know, the Midorth mythology, uh, gnomes actually refer to the Nodor, so there's kind of an interesting connection there. I know, <laughs> but I did not know back then. Because in, in Germany, in Germany, we have a you know a similar world with which we which would be gnome, and um, that would be related to dwarfs. You know yeah. that that is not a one to one translation, but a gnome is more what we consider to be a dwarf, and therefore I use the word because I know it exists in English. I did not even check it in the dictionary; I just used it. Yeah, I mean, Tolkien definitely had a habit of you know taking words and using them as own, so. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> easy to fix Yeah, man, I, I totally understand you there. Like, I talk a lot here with the guys, so I speak a lot of English. But I still, like, sneak. You can tell that I use some words that are just, like, they work in Spanish, which is my native language. But then <laughs> in English it sounds off and weird. But maybe someone else that speaks my same language can understand what I tried to say. And, and I'm, I'm sure about writing it. lyrics, that, that happens a lot as well. Like sometimes you're listening and, and you say, oh, I think I know what he tried to say here. He must speak this language. <laughs> well, I, you know, nowadays it's far easier because we're connected via Internet. And um, our webmaster, who is American, has a very careful look on whatever we're releasing nowadays so things like that would not happen and i myself i'm more careful but you know it was the golden 80s and the you know not so golden 90s <laughs> the beginning of the 90s yeah. um, so it was no no problem at all no one ever complained about and you know when we read did songs like uh, a lot of the rings i you know exchanged the words because you know, I, I felt it would be more accurate to to sing about uh, the dwarves, or uh, you know, when I another English word like legacy. When I used it for the first time, I said legacy because it felt more natural for me. Right. And I I failed to you know have our webmaster checking this before, and so it ended up on the album. Things like that happen. I mean, I'm I'm German, and as you said, um, you know, I've made the same experience, especially. With native speakers, they are very tolerant. Yeah. I'm thankful to you guys for that, for being tolerant. I think, uh, <laughs> I think most English speakers are monolingual, so it's just kind of amazing to us that all of you guys can speak you know, more than one language and have it, have it be comprehensible to us. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be, you know, a privilege for us, you know, mm. uh, growing up in, in such a world where, you know, there is a language which you are supposed to be able to speak. And for you, it is the mother language. But for us, it is the second language. So um, we might have more difficulties in um, expressing ourselves sometimes. But on the other hand, as you said, we are for most cases capable of a second language, which uh, is a blessing. And especially for me as a metal vocalist, because going back to the 80s one more time, uh, if we were uh, supposed to do German metal in German in the 80s, we would not exist anymore because no one was interested in, in a German metal band singing in German. Um, that has changed due to uh, Rammstein a little bit, but um, that was too late. would have been too late for us because, you know, our music career started in, in the mid of the 80s and we were, you know, we were totally dedicated to metal. So there was no question for us whether there was, you know, an option to sing in German or not. That was um, 
no discussion amongst the band members at, at no point. It was obvious we, we need to, you know, do that in English as good as we can because all of our favorite bands, um, they were singing in English. And I also think that it comforts metal music in particular more than, for example, German music. French does a good job, I have to say. You know, I like some of the French metal bands um, from the 80s. That sounds quite good. But German is, for metal relations, quite diff difficult, I think. I mean, it seems to be case across European countries that most of the metal bands from them tend to sing in English. I mean, Italian bands, I've noticed, you know, tend to mix up more whether they sing in English or Italian. But, I mean, it seems to be a you know, trans-European thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm, we're grown up with English-speaking bands, um, and that's the reason. I also agree. Um, Italian, you know, that would be a nice language to find out how that sounds because it's a beautiful language and you know a lot of operas have been or maybe most of them of the old operas have been composed in uh, italian language because you know it it does the trick and it probably would for for metal music as well but you know i can't speak any italian so <laughs> that would be no option for me It'd be interesting to hear a, a future Blind Guardian song in German if, if that ever came up. Well, I doubt that. We did mm -hmm. some attempts in uh, with Harvest of Sorrow, actually. We did a French version. Mm -hmm. We did one Italian version oh. and two different Spanish versions. Uh, my Spanish is a little oh, really? better nowadays, oh, right. I have to say. But, um, I mean, it's not good, but, I, you know, I if, if someone translated it i would be able to sing it in a proper way i was not back then right. um it, it sounds okay i would say the best version is the french version because i did that in france i was invited by by our record company and they they um rented a studio and there was a native speaker you know um conducting me and i have had a french in school so this one partly is quite good it's called moisson de pain as far as i remember <laughs> the uh, spanish one one was called la concecha del dolor and mies del dolor was the other one so and fruto de, del buio was the uh, uh italian one and uh, that was the worst for me um, even though i love the language but uh, you know <laughs> that was a total disaster yeah it's the thing with with all those languages like you know They are really similar in some stuff, but when it comes to actually singing in all those languages, some phonemes are like really foreign to you. Like I, I can I, I studied German for a bit a few years ago, and I have troubles with some 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 things that you have to say, some sounds that you have to make that are just I don't I never used them before, so I don't know how to make them. So like, how do you put your song or what? And when you're singing, that's even more difficult because you have to, okay, I'm singing this thing and I have to produce this sound while making the correct note and and it gets really complicated real fast. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> then you have Tolkien going off and making his own languages and oh, yeah. you know, studying so many on his own that for oh, like yeah. Old English, Old Norse, Finnish. Yeah. It's just amazing what he did with that. Yeah, I mean, I said he, he's a linguistic genius and um, that makes it so exciting. And, and sometimes I, you know, I, I feel that every nation, uh, 
you know, every foreign language speaker, you know, tries to make his universe his own by, you know, you know, trying to pronounce it, his words as good as possible. And um, of course, there are pundits who, who know the language exactly and they know the Telerian dialect and this accent, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, it, it is very impressive to see and um, it, it just gives you an idea, you know. Um, for example, if we're talking about Morgoth, because it's not Morgoth, it's... It is considered to be Morgoth, at, at least that's what I've been told. But, uh, you know, if I sang it in English, and I did on the album for most cases, I sing Morgoth, of course, because yeah. it's TH at the end. I mean, I mean, yeah. And, uh, and, and I yeah. you know, I, I would guess that this is the most suitable English way. So it, it doesn't matter too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone in the Tolkien community just says Morgoth, so. Yeah, and this just happened to us. We were talking last week, and I, I speaking in English, said the word uh, Mordor like this, like in English, like pulling back on my rolling R's. Like I, as a Spanish speaker, would normally say Mordor. Sounds great. And that's supposed, and, and, and Ed told me here that that's how you're supposed to say it. And I was like translating to English. So I was saying Mordor, like with that soft R. And, and no, I, I don't have... I, I, I was saying it correctly. I shouldn't translate it. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds dangerous when you're saying yeah. it, you know? Yeah, like, Mordor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Silmarillion even has that, like, guide to pronunciation in the back, hitting, like, the different vowel or consonant sounds, even, like, the DH, like, in your username there, Ed. <laughs> yeah. It's like, there are actually uh, recordings of Tolkien, you know, singing various songs and taking readings from his books if you read his Sindarin or if you listen to and listen to his Sindarin words he really goes for those rolled R's hmm. yeah 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 I would guess so I, I really would guess so you know he had a definite uh, idea about things and he was so much into language and linguistic aspects in general so I'm sure that he you know played along with all the stuff and a rolling R is you know, kind of tempting, especially in a world like Mordor. You know, they do it in the movies as well, as far as I remember, you know. that, And, and the rolling R is sort of old English as well. I mean, I, I would not be surprised to find it there a lot of times, and, and the Scottish certainly do it. Hmm. Yeah. So many people know, like, uh, these stories were in part sort of Tolkien's justification for the languages I made. The languages and stories are deeply intertwined with each other, sort of grew with each other. I think... Part of what makes uh, the whole of his works so compelling, like to go deep and investigate, because you know there's more to this, and you go book after book into the Silmarillion and every part. Because since you have all these languages said, like you can tell, okay, there's a whole world complete in this, because otherwise there wouldn't be a full language showed here. Yeah, it's what helps make it all more cohesive and saying okay so we have these guys that speak this tongue and these guys that speak this other tongue and then immediately i have two cultures that i want to investigate and see where they come from and how they interact with each other and that that's what's so great about all of this like you want to go deep and investigate all of this and then you find it that it's actually there <laughs> that's that's amazing I, I think it is very amazing and um 
I, I don't see that only on on the language side, but also you know on on the universal approach of his creation. Yeah, for sure. Um, if if we go back to the Silmarillion, you know, and you know, then compare that with a lot of the rings, you you get an idea of the size, and um, this alone deserves all the respect. Um, Tolkien has gotten over the years and you know um, the, the Silmarillion finished would have outperformed the Lord of the Rings by far if you ask me I mean Tolkien definitely thought of it as you know his prime work it's sort of interesting because in the Lord of the Rings you get mentions like Purin and Gondolin and so on and at the time you know that was all there was there was just these hints that there was something more out there and you know it was only decades later that readers finally got Cimmerillion and could read those stories. It's just kind of cool that all builds up and interacts with each other. Yeah, when I was showing a friend of mine the movies for the first time, you'll feel forgive me for talking about the movies, Ed, <laughs> uh, he was like really blown away by just like how like thought out the world was. It didn't feel like it was just being made up as it went along. It was like, like yeah, like the whole point of Tolkien was he... He made like these languages, this world. He thought it all out, and on a level that I think is just so impressive. Me, I want to say he started writing these stories in 1917. It was like right after World and, War One, wasn't it? Yeah, like during World War One, and you know, Hobbit wasn't published until 1937. That's quite some time. Yeah. Then he has Lord of the Rings, quite a bit after that. You know, he was still working on these stories pretty much up to his death. And they say George R. R. Martin takes a long time to think about it. <laughs> I'm sure some people listening um, will have just found out just how old this stuff is. I know I was in, I was shocked by it uh, when I was younger. I, I, I read Lord of the Rings when I was like 10 years old or something. My dad had it. And then at, around the time... I'm not sure, like, it was already 16 or 17 that I found out, hey, this came out, like, 60, 70 years ago or something like that, The, the Hobbit. And it's like, well, man, is this, was this written so long ago? Uh, like, it feels fresh and exciting and, and complete and everything. And, and, and I, I wouldn't have thought that it was something that to, to be considered old. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, but but that also depends maybe on the uh, versions you read, you know, um, because I, I have old ones and, you know, I can figure that it, it has been written some time ago. Um, I would probably not guess that it's that old, but, you know, Christo Christopher Tolkien worked a lot on it, you know, to make it accurate. Hmm. And, you know, he, he, he did not change things, but he brought them into a certain chronological order and you know he, he he cleansed the stuff as good as he could um yeah. yeah i feel i mean yeah of course it's old english um in the way tolkien is thinking in general but um i mean the story is timeless no doubt about that but i i figure i can you know sense that this is not written during the last 20 years or 30 yeah. years I, I would guess um if someone told me it has been written in the 60s, I would say, yeah, that might be, and maybe even the 70s, but, you know, I feel that it's a little older mm. in, in terms of, you know, how 
how some things are defined and you know how the progression of the story goes it's like shakespeare it still amazes people but uh, i can sense that it's not actually a a, a new yeah composition yeah yeah you're right you're right about that yeah, i mean the uh, writing of the the start of the language it's kind of dated it's not super dated but well token was that that's where i point out that i read it in spanish And yeah. then that's where some of that oldish English way of speaking might be lost. At least probably that, that can be also from the version that I read. But I, I understand that it's written in a way that feels like, okay, this isn't, nobody speaks like this. Nobody writes, writes mm -hmm. like this currently. And in Spanish, I didn't really get that impression because there's not like a... Ber uh, the equivalent of old Spanish um, it's not really used in Latin America as it is in Spain so the translations don't really go that that hard on it well that's just my experience for me it was um, kind of more interesting to see how the uh, English version in general related to old German Oh, English and German they have the same root You know, it's it's one language which gets closest in the nowadays Dutch language, funny enough. But um, and Dutch comes from German because Dutch means Deutsch and Deutsch is what, you know, we consider yeah, German. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it, the Dutch language gets closest to the origin. Um, and so does some of the Scandinavian languages. Um, and I found a lot of words. Uh, I cannot really figure one at the moment, which... And, and the grammar, the position of words, which gets closer to, you know, regular nowadays German than it does to uh, a regular grammar in English, you know, ah, when, hmm. when speaking. And like du hast is, is one of the um, old English explanations in there or, or terms he's using. And in Germany, that would be du hast. So, you know, these these. These words and these family roots, they are so closely related that sometimes for me, the, the old English um, does make a deeper impact and uh, um, a more logical um, relation than, than sometimes nowadays English. It's also interesting because we were talking about a Tolkien's music earlier, like songs that he put into his stories and such. And he would actually uh, sort of revive, you know, old Norse forms of poetry and such. And especially for the Rohirrim, you know, he didn't rely on sort of the rhyming schemes that are more popular, though he used those too. I'm totally blanking on the name of it, but you know, he sort of you know, took influence from you know, how the poetic, poetic ad is certain and such. And you said there are groups that take the songs that he wrote in the books and have put their own music to them, correct? Oh, yeah. There's this project that happened, I think, in the mid-2000s called the uh, Tolkien Ensemble. And basically, they just took Tolkien's lyrics and, you know, put them song, had opera singers and such sing them. It's really a great performance to listen to. I was, I was actually kind of thinking that... uh might be cool to get like a metal token ensemble someday i heard about such music but uh, i think there's a swedish group doing stuff like this i think they're danish or danish oh that that might be true 
I may even have the CD at home. I, I'm not <laughs> sure if I ever listened to it, but uh, but uh, I, I may have it. Do you recall a guy called Bohansen? Bohansson, he did a, a whole album called The Lord of the Rings. I don't. I do not know. That is a 70s album. It's it's quite interesting music. It's As far as I remember, it's instrumental music. But it also, you know, it, it, I don't know how to explain the music. It's not jazz. It's experimental music, you can say. And even that, that fits completely. And you, you get an image of the story. So there are multiple ways, you know, to... Yeah. Get access to to the Tolkien universes, and and it's just a question which string has been played in you, you know, to you know, or which string has been awakened. <laughs> and oh, that comment just you know it reminds me of how Tolkien viewed these viewed these things as you know, they weren't things that they were that he was creating; he was discovering them. Like Middle Earth exists outside of Tolkien. Yeah, you know, um, that, that defines a lot, you know, and explains a lot. Um, it, it is like exploring, you know, exploring universes. It's, it's more like, like finding out about things um, for your own, you know, for yourself. And you get a better and bigger, better picture. Sometimes when um, I have to work on, on concepts here, It, you know, it's a similar experience, you know, mm -hmm. someone throws in a world or so and out of this world, a universe can be created, you know, and yeah. uh, there is no real um, way to define how to get there. You, you know, it's, it's honestly, yeah. it's the way, you know, you're the path, you know, you just have to take it and like, like the Hobbit, you know, the road goes on. That's how it is. You, know, you just go out and you have to find out. And by going, you find out things and you will see things and witness things which, you know, have an impact on you and you react on this impact. You, you just mentioned Tom Bombadil. That is, you know, another perfect example for me, you know, um, how Tolkien explored things and, you know, how he... How, how he brought in interferences or himself into a story. Stephen King that did that in the Dark Tower in a in a quite different way because he he appeared as Stephen King, but you know as an alternate Stephen King. Um, and I like that Tom Bombadil aspect uh, totally because you know you you have that universe in the universe, and this universe may belong more to him, but it's still you know a new creation. Is quite the enigma, but just have to say that listening to how you how you describe your approach to you know, creating art and such, I definitely sense some sort of kindred spirit with Tolkien there. Well, <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I'm I'm a fanboy. When talking to you, I just figure it again. Um, that might have been you know one of the reasons for the Nightfall in Middle Earth choice. Um, with regard to the uh, other two concepts, because when talking about the Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion and when digging into the stuff, I discover that sensation in me. You know, I, I also discover that when creating music. So there certainly are similarities, but mainly I'm a fanboy. Do you have a favorite Tolkien story? Well, 
what's it called? Rover, Rover Random? I oh, like Rover Random. Yeah. And um, I also like, depending on how you look at it, I like the uh, his Ethereum approach, you know, of that story. Mm-hmm. But I, I mainly focus, to be honest, on, on the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion yeah. topic. So whatever he has written with regard to that or w- what has been published, you know, I try to read and to investigate. But as mentioned before as well, I'm not a nerd. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know I'm, I'm a fanboy, but I'm not a nerd. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, Christopher Tolkien has done such a great job putting so much of his father's writings out there and, you know, really explaining them. Yeah, I mean, uh, he seems to, you know, be the one who is aware of um, how val- valuable the stuff is and how uh, much appreciated it is by, by yeah. you know, people to get different aspects of Tolkien's writing. I mean, just imagine most of it has been handwritten as far as I know. He didn't even oh, type definitely. Right. And he, and Tolkien had rather, rather messy handwriting. Yeah. Christopher Tolkien has actually talked a bit about how much of a pain it was to really, you know, dig through that and get something intelligible down. <laughs> you know, I can easily imagine he, you know, he was a teacher. I mean, that alone and, you know, how um, sophisticated he is. Whew. You know, and I, I can just imagine that, you know, collecting the stuff and putting that into the right paper order is a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Like, it was just boxes and boxes of, you know, essays and, you know, notes on old newspapers. And, you know, really to get something like Simrillion out in as short a time period as he did, it's really just amazing. And you're dealing with complex languages and names, too. <laughs> Yeah, and you know he he tried to avoid mistakes, so he was revisiting things again. And Christopher Tolkien is doing the same, or has been doing the same things. You know, he he tried to get everything into a relation so people would understand. But you know, and that that is an accomplishment alone, I think. And I mean, I think it speaks to how much he cared about it. That you know, he's mentioned that he's had nightmares of his father basically criticizing, you know, what he did with Simrillion even though he did such a great job with it. Yeah, that's for sure. Because you, especially the, uh, the Silmarillion book itself, you know, it's, it, it feels pretty much untouched. Like, you know, the words yeah. are the words. And I, I think he even mentioned when he, you know, tried to bring it into a chronic, chronological or into a logical order. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the uh, forward to it, he basically talks about you know, yeah. this work is what it is, but similarly is truly this evolving work, which you know, he eventually published as the History of Middle-Earth. I mean, I gotta ask, uh, Into the Storm, where you have, you know, of course, we are following the will of the one. Yeah. Is that referring to the uh, Balrogs coming to rescue Morgoth? That, that is his tribe or his pack, you know, de- definitely just being there but um not only the evil ones you know that that is more related to everyone because you know whatever they are doing you know it is at the very end you know in the will of iluvatar and that is what this this line is related to yeah because the one refers of course to eruvatar but 
Morgoth also had sort of this thing of wanting to be God, wanting to be Eru. So, no. He would also be referred to as the One. Well, I mean, <laughs> the One is a kind of legal um, and, of course, place-holding uh, element. You know, the One, for me, there was Iluvata. That's for yeah. sure. I thought it was interesting uh, that you said that that song was originally called Gollum Speaks. And I was thinking of like, oh, it's him following the will of the One Ring in a way. <laughs> Uh, we weren't that far at that point, you know. It's just uh, one of the reasons why uh, Angoliant appears like Gollum a little bit, you know. Um, and I, I could refer to that quite, you know, precisely because, you know, everyone has back then when the movies were not, you know, um, in the cinemas, um, still had an idea how Gollum would sound just because of, you know, the, the books and probably one one or two, um, uh, not cartoons, what is it called? Um, the uh, animated films? The animated films, yeah, right, exactly. So um, having him as a role model, you know, was quite easy, gave quite easy access to Angolian, which, you know, does not really have a voice, you know, by anyone. Yeah. And I just, instead of making it Gollum-like, just, you know, mean and, you know, like like two-faced, you know, I, I, I try to bring in a certain hollow size. But uh, still, as said, Gollum was a pretty good role model for that particular place. Uh, place. I mean, they're both definitely very creepy characters. Yeah, they are. I mean, it's just this, you know, emptiness of Angoliant, which is so, so tempting. And by, you know, having such a character, knowing that it, it grows bigger and stronger than Morgoth during this, uh, this travel, um, leaves such a strong impression in the the way of making that you know i i needed to somehow design something bigger or, or still quite different in comparison to to gollum it, it needed some 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 extra vibes and uh, i gave that with a second and third voice even with thingle and sorting like no one really knows where she came from or what she is. One interesting theory is that she's sort of the result of uh, Morgoth's discord in the music. But you know, right from the beginning, like you get the sense that this character is not right. Yeah, th this character is not right, exactly. That, that's what it is. And um, something, you know, which fears Morgoth must be, you know, a, a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> I can't <laughs> complain, I cannot complain in another way. And um, having such being, um, you know, is a privilege and a pleasure for, for any artist. Yes, you play a wonderful giant spider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, on the other hand, I still, this drives Morgoth or Melkor into, you know, a smaller position. You know, which which I also like because um, that gives me room for desperation, which he feels as well. You know, and um, I always loved that aspect that there is something which really fears him. I mean, one of the recurring motifs in Tolkien's work is that 
no, the evil guys are ones who truly feel fear. Like Morgoth, like with the duel with Fingolfin, like Morgoth has to sort of be goaded out to fight him, even though he's it's much more powerful being. Yeah, true, true. But you know, there, you know, um, he experienced fear a lot of times up to that point in the story. And um, with Fingolfin, I, on the other hand, thought the uh, the sarcastic aspect of you know being hurt, but at the end still in a position to succeed um, was more tempting for me there. But yeah, you're right. In general, um, um, these creatures, you know, and that might be a fact in general, you know, even evil creatures, no fear. It's like sort of that desire to you know, have power and hold on to things. You know, that's part of where fear comes from. Yeah. Uh, one of our other members of the podcast would love us to talk to you about uh, the song Time Stands Still. Where did the idea of you know time standing still while Fingolfin and Morgoth fought come from? Uh, the Iron Hill is where, where, you know, this is supposed to happen. So right. Um, right. I, I just felt that, you know, it is a very important moment, a changing situation, you know, on, on one hand, you know, there was that desperate battle lost already. Fingolfin writes in desperation, you know, to, you know, find the ultimate situation. And obviously this needed to happen in a yeah, almost timeless uh, a frame. So time was supposed to stand still because uh, it is maybe the not only one of the biggest accomplishments of Fingolfin, but um, such a valiant deed and uh, deed and bravery um, that it needed to be featured with such impressive words. And yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I like to deal with time anyway. I'm I'm the time guy <laughs> <laughs> at the but, edge uh, of it, so to speak. <laughs> It's definitely a moment where, you know, the eyes of the world were on that duel, even if not in a literal fashion. Yeah, like you said, it's a, it's a key moment in time. I, I like that idea. One other song that, or interlude, I guess I want to ask about as we maybe wrap things up is, could you tell us about the recording of Lameth or Morgoth's uh, big scream as he was uh, fighting on Goliath? That was heavily inspired by the story itself because it says there was such a scream. And um, I, well, <laughs> the, the screenplay said scream. That's a desperate, <laughs> desperate, definite <laughs> scream, you know, of pain. And, and the guy did. And uh, obviously there was some ice breaking going on with it, you know, be, because, you know, it, it changes the, the, the shape of the world or at least the shape of the ice. Um, I needed that to be involved, and uh, our engineer Charlie Baufine, who was um, in charge of the um, interludes and all these uh, dialogue um, parts, um, he came up with the uh, idea to distort the scream a little bit, so it became even more intense, and uh, it totally does the trick. It, it doesn't need more. Yeah, this was a scream that you know had a whole region named after it for quite some yeah. time after. Yeah, it's got to be epic. Yeah, because I think it would. I don't know how it was in the story, but did it stay in the region as well? Yeah. Was it still? Yeah, it was. So, it was lingering. 
Yeah, I think I have had that in mind, and you know, an echo and whatever you need, you know, it should have probably appeared at a later point again to make that even more obvious. But you know, I haven't thought about that back then. It just comes into my mind right now, and that's too late. I mean, I think it works well where it is. I mean, it's uh, happens when Mongolian attacks Morgoth, and he's you know screaming for help from his Balrogs. Was that really f screaming for help? I thought it was, you know. Out of desperation, yeah, you know. it was. You know, My he was in agony, but the result is that his parogs come in, uh, teaching going and some things about fire with wings. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! <goodness>. Well, <laughs> in one of the texts, oh. yeah, it does say oh that parogs flew there, and some wings defenders bring that up. Uh. <laughs> yeah. See, that's how I relate to the story. Well, it's Tolkien says fly for run fast all the time. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's too much. <laughs> these guys just love troubling me about wings. Like, yes, what was Gandalf's wingspan? <laughs> I never asked what Gandalf's wingspan was. I did ask that. Someone did. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was funny at the moment. <laughs> we, we can agree, we can all agree that Balrogs can fly. Yep. Uh, I mean, one of the points is that uh, Morgoth didn't have any flying servants until uh, the War of Wrath and and Calgon and the Winged Dragons showed up. Maybe, maybe, maybe they can't just fall with style. And, and we <laughs> that's one way to put it. <laughs> Falling with style. In the Lord of the Rings, at least one. <laughs> maybe it's like the old Superman comics where he didn't oh. actually fly; he just jumped. He just jumped so really high, yeah. Really high, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we definitely see the Balrog doing that in Moria. Yeah. He basically leaped across a big chasm. Okay, so we can all agree that Balrogs can jump really high and really far. Yep. It's a good compromise point. That's, a good compromise. That's the middle point we can all agree on. <laughs> Which brings up the question of, did the Balrogs, like, did they play basketball if they're such good at, like, jumping? <laughs> <laughs> Their physical skills are limited, so basketball is no option for them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's true. We're having a great time, and... I want to say again that uh, we are really happy that you joined us for this really good time. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate your time, guys. This was this was really a great talk. Uh, we don't want to to keep you longer. You know, we might be a bit late there. Yeah, you're several hours ahead of us there. Uh, it's it's ten thirty in the evening here. Yeah, we're covering a lot of time zones here. It's uh, five five thirty for me. Yeah, like tea time. I'm out in uh, Portland, Oregon at one thirty p.m. One thirty. Oh yeah, that's early, and it's Sunday. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They have. You have a long. Day they have. They have me. the whole. They <laughs> they still have all Sunday for them, and <laughs> we yeah. we are we are so we're near Monday. You guys. We're so near Monday. It's not cool. <laughs> time. What is time? <laughs> no, no, no. We're very. We're very close to to Monday, yeah, and no one likes Mondays, that's for sure. Not at all. <laughs> it doesn't make a difference here, you know. In the studio, is all the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Hansi, as we're wrapping up here, I think we would just like to turn the floor over to you. If you have any final words you'd like to say, anything you'd want to plug, you know, it, the floor is yours. Yeah, great pleasure talking to you. Um, what I can say is um, expect 
the next Blind Guardian album, which is going to be the orchestral album, which has some original Tolkien ties in terms mm -hmm. of when we started composing it. Um, we worked on it for more than 20 years now. Um, it will not be Tolkien-related in terms of, of lyrics, but uh, the music has that strong language again. So mm -hmm. people should check that out and... It will be surprising music. I'm, I'm sure you're going to like it. Um, have a nice evening and enjoy the rest of the week, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks Hans. for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Can I, can I ask one thing of you? Just one thing. Can you say uh, for all of our listeners, just tell everyone to stay powerful. Guys, enjoy the rest of the evening and stay powerful. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. It was a great pleasure and great fun as well. Mm -hmm.